Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, you're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. We normally broadcast on the fan from 9 to 11. Because of a football game, they bumped us over to our friends on the ESPN side from 10 to noon. So if you're new to the show, follow us back. We should be on the fan the next few weeks again. I'm not aware, but we're always happy to come over here with our friends from ESPN. And you can follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. We'll give you our schedule coming up. We, we put podcasts, links to podcasts up there. So if you miss one, and by the way, you can go to the uh, 950, uh, 950, 1043, the fans uh, website, and look at the podcast. They go back for months if you've missed some. They're all up there. And then you can watch us on our YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. Let's go to the phones now. And he is a legendary guide. He has been nominated to the Fishing Hall of Fame in Minnesota. He's without question one of the pioneers of modern-day ice fishing, one of the most accomplished anglers that I get to spend time on the water with, and we do get to fish together quite often, and that's Greg Clausio. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. So how's the weather up in the Northland today? <laughs> you know what? You know, many years ago we used to have the Minnesota Masters of ice fishing, and uh, we had to cancel eventually because of the weather. It was too warm. It's perfect now. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving weekend, and we should be out there. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get in the truck when the show's over. I'll be right there. <laughs> okay. We had, uh, I remember you and I and Dave Gens and some of the other renowned ice fishermen, and we were just developing the techniques that seem so commonplace in ice fishing now, and they've come so far. We'll talk about some of that. But we really, um, we were learning as we went and, and refining things, and wasn't it an exciting time? It really was, and I was the, the first, one of the first ones in my area to have a Vexlar, any kind of electronics for the ice, and uh, what an eye-opener for people that followed me around the lake. I mean, it was just incredible. And then where electronics have come with the mapping, with the side view, with uh, pan optics, uh, it's just, it's, we'll talk some about that if we have time, but it's just incre- incredible. And the portable shelters that took us out there and allowed us to move around and be mobile and find the fish. Yeah, and we could thank Mr. Dave Gens for that. He kind of blazed the trail, and we were right on his heels. My first fish trap was hand-sewed by his wife, and the sled was a calving tray. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I had one of the old white canvas ones, too. Yeah. Used to make, make them in his basement and plywood floors and all that. Now, I want to get to some techniques and some things like line and lures and rods. But before we do that, there's a lot of things that have changed. And one of them has been the clothing. Now, you can go back when we were young. You couldn't find clothing to keep you warm. We were out on the ice sitting on a bucket with those pool cue sticks and army surplus bunny boots and trying to find. Stay- oh, it was miserable. And then the new suits <laughs> and the layering came along. And then now you've taken it another step where your suit now is even a flotation device. You know what? And uh, I was checking around almost almost every every company that makes an ice fishing suit has some model of a float suit. So every year there's in leaps and bounds, there's just more improvements and it's making it better and safer for everybody. Well, and you know, the, the suits are so warm now 
and you layer properly under them, you can so you can change the level of protection you need. Um, and although you and I have been fortunate not to have tragedies on the ice, even for all the hours and days we've spent there. But it also, you know, don't take it as a false sense of confidence, but take it as another reason to feel comfortable when you're out there. The one question I have, and I still am, have a non-float suit. I'm going to look this year whether I upgrade or not. Did it add bulk? This one didn't. and That was a selling point for me. I mean, it was just like a normal suit. I could feel some extra padding in the knees. You know, I got a chance to get out and fish yesterday, and I was kneeling down and, it was really comfortable, but yeah, it's not bulky, the jacket or the bibs. So I was really sold on that. Now, another thing that's changed a lot, and I don't know if I'll ever own a gas auger again. Um, <laughs> propane is really taken off, but the electric augers, uh, I know you've gone to those pretty exclusively. Tell me your feelings on those. Well, when they first, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, I, I was a hard sell. You know, old school. You know, I, I did a lot of fishing way in the way up in the backwoods of Canada and around northern Minnesota, where if something happens, it happens. You're in trouble. I mean, I wanted to make sure that the auger would start, so I always had a gas auger. We could always get it to run, and I thought maybe the batteries would go dead on me. But uh, you know, this year I thought it was after last year actually in Upper Red Lake. You know, I'm out there fishing. I start up my auger. A solo auger, it, run, it runs like a champ, but loud. I was the only one making noise on the lake, it seemed. Everybody everybody had an electric auger, about 2,000 people except me. You know, <laughs> So that's how, how popular they are. Everybody's getting the electric auger. And I thought, well, I'll, I was going to bite the bullet last year. Then I went to the local sporting goods store, and uh, because of COVID and nobody working, and everything was sold out. So I made sure to get a 40-volt Strike Master right away this fall. And uh, I got a chance to use it yesterday, and it's thin ice, but still, it's, I'm going to like it. What size? Um, now, we this is something, and I haven't debated it yet this, this year with Zelinsky or not, but we go back and forth. I tend towards smaller holes. I use a, a six-inch hand auger when I can. I think I stole it from you, by the way. And, and <laughs> yeah, then, we still got we still have each other's augers. <laughs> I know. And then when I do have a power auger, I usually use an 8-inch. I very seldom go to a 10. What are you using? You know, and I never, I always use an 8. And I fish, you know, I, I haven't caught any monster lake trout, but I've caught them up into the teens, and I've always used an 8-inch hole. And in Canada and even, you know, up in uh, Lake Winnipeg for the big walleyes, I had an eight-inch hole. I haven't had any problems. You well, get ten-pound walleyes. Yeah, and I, I think it, it actually cuts so much better an eight-inch than a ten-inch. Your battery's going to last longer. It's a lighter unit. And one of the things I argue with Zelinsky, he likes a big hole. He says it's easier to turn the head up. Well, I tell him if I get a big fish in that smaller hole, it can't turn and go back down. I've caught it if I don't do something stupid then. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a... A horse apiece on that that debate, you know, because I I had a friend of mine. Uh, he was going to a local mine pit here a couple of years ago, and he goes, "Do you think I need a ten inch or eight inch?" I said, "Take an eight. I said, "I've never had a problem ever." And uh, little did I know they had stocked some monster lake trout in there from uh, Isle Royal and Lake Superior. He gets a thirty pounder stuck in the hole, and he couldn't get it up, and he broke his line. 
<laughs> well, you... Under um, under normal situation, I've never had a problem. I've never had a, a fish stuck in an eight inch hole. I haven't either. So maybe... and I catch some big lake trout up here in in uh, Colorado too. And if if I'd have been you and that, I'd have told them, "Hey, I told you you needed a bigger auger." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know oh, the other gosh. one of the other things I want to talk about. I know we got a lot of we could keep going forever, but one of the other things I really want to talk about is the um, what's happened with electronics. You mentioned, like, you and I were some of the first ones out there along with Gens. We had the old icebox and the motorcycle batteries using Vexlars because the flasher was the only thing fast enough that could process enough that when you moved your lure, you saw it move in real time, and you saw the fish react in real time. Now there's a lot of people like yourself who stay with a flasher, and I still have two flashers and two graphs that are really tremendous because they're so much faster now, and I like both. But there's something else, and that's the side viewing, and I know you've gone to the pan optics. How has that changed what you do? That's remarkable. You know, it. Uh, it you know, it'll cut your, there again, pros and cons of it. I mean, you'll be out on a lake, and if you're not seeing fish, you can put the use a pan optics and scan 50 or 60, 70 feet off to the side. And, oh, lo and behold, there's some fish over there. Well, you can go over there, drill a hole. It'll tell you exactly how far away it is. You can drill a hole, be right on top of them, and catch fish one after another. But I've been on the other side of it. You get over there and drill a hole, and they're gone. And so I put put the pan optics down or live scope, put it down, scan around. Well, there they are, another 75 feet in another direction. I go over there. And this could go on all day, and that thing weighs over 25 pounds. <laughs> you know? So it's one of those times where maybe you should just sit still and wait, but it does pinpoint where the fish are. And the thing with that is selective harvest, because with all the stuff available to us now, we've got to be careful. We can't be just taking, you know, just beating up on these lakes. No, we want to be always selective harvest. You know, what you said about be patient, I want to, I want to get back to that because in the early days, we used to call them trap attacks. We used to say we took our fish traps and our electronics, and we went out and we'd drill 100 holes to find the fish, and we'd move. And if there was three of us, two were fishing, one was moving, and then the other were moving, and we were looking for fish. If we didn't have a fish in 10, 15 minutes, we were on the move, and we did so well because compared to the way most people ice fish, it was so revolutionary. But we may have almost over-preached that, especially out here in the West. And I'm going to talk about that over the next few weeks more. But trout are a cruise a lot. So you may drill and not see them. But wait, Nate Zielinski and I were talking. A lot of times early in the year, they're very shallow, two, three feet of water. Well, you're not going to see them on your electronics when that's shallow of water. But if you get an active presentation and you stay there and work it, you might very well get more fish than moving around. So sometimes you've got to put a little thought to it, Greg. I believe that too. Uh, we used to do a lot, what we called run and gun. You know, we'd drill a hole and check. Somebody would be going ahead of you and drilling holes, and we'd have a guy following behind with a Vexlar, checking, checking, checking. Oh, here they are, a nice bunch of crappies. But, you know, you get back to the trout, some of the lakes, uh, the mine pits I fish here, I'll leave, I'll leave my electronics right in the truck because a lot of them are just cruising right below your feet, like in six feet, six feet below you. So, and I cut a big hole. I do a lot of sight fishing, and I don't. If it's too big a hole, you might drop the electronics in there. <laughs> that was my fear. 
But yeah, so you know, I think that we're starting to see a tempering where used to see the run and gun. In fact, it showed up in the shelter use where we used to have everybody. We wanted a single fish trap. We each wanted our own. And I still fish out of one a lot because I go by myself or with a couple friends that have their own. But then it went to two and three man fish traps where we were more camaraderie. We could share it more till now. They set up a lot of times a hub shelter in the middle of the area you're going to fish. And then you just go back and forth to that, get warmed up, have lunch. But you're you're moving around outside of it to check holes and stuff. So it really is changing, isn't it? It is. And it's nice to get back and have that camaraderie and be fishing with somebody. Those hub shelters, well, I remember before, like you said, everybody would have a one-man, and we're hollering, we've got one over here, you know, and somebody's 100 feet away, and you're just hollering. But now you can get together, and you could you could fish three or four people or more and be really comfortable. You could cook a, a nice meal in those, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And the, the price right. Oh, it really is. And now the last thing I want to talk to you about, and I'm talking to everybody that comes on about this, and I'll tell you right, though, there's no consensus. Everybody's given me a different answer, and that's we've talked about rods and reels and matching your rod and your reel and the action of the rod, but the line. I get so much, so many different perspectives on line. Somebody uses pure floor. Doug Stangy loves fluorocarbon. Bro Brosdahl uses some mono and he uses super line. Dave Gens is all over the place. I use a lot of super line with leaders. Where are you at on the line for ice fishing? Well, for for a lot of the panfish, I'll use just mono. I, I like I've used Trilene XL for thirty years, and I'm still using it. I'll use stuff two to three pound test, maybe four, depending on what it is. But uh, if I'm fishing for trout. If, if it's kind of deep and I'm fishing for walleyes deeper, I'll have, or trout, I'll have braided line with a fluorocarbon leader. But usually 90% of the time I've got just mono. And do you have to change it pretty often? Do you find it absorbs water? Do you find it, it gets a lot of memory? Or, or does it last throughout an ice fishing season pretty well? Oh, it, w- it would last, you know, because I have an abundance of line here, I change maybe every other month or every month, but I really wouldn't have to. You know, a lot of the fishing we're doing is like you're down 30 feet at max. All I really would have to do is peel off 40 feet and cut it and retie, and it's all new line ready to rip. But I take it all off and I re-spool on these days that are real cold and miserable. Get a little stir-crazy, so it's time to take care of equipment. Now, we're out of time. i got maybe a minute maybe two, if you were going to talk to new ice anglers, what's the one biggest mistake you see most new ice fishermen make? The biggest mistake? Yeah. Mm, Probably not moving enough. I see a lot of them drill a hole and they'll just sit there. I think you gotta, you gotta move around. All right, my friend. A lot of times the fish won't find you. You have to find them. That takes us full circle right back to where we started. Uh, Was that about about two years ago we started doing all this? (laughs) I think. (laughs) Oh, boy. uh, I think think it's more like 40 or 50 years ago, but we had an impact, and we, we sure had a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Thank you, Terry. Have a good day. You bet. That's Greg Claudio, legendary angler, Hall of Fame nominee, uh, just one of the most accomplished ice anglers, accomplished year-round anglers I've ever fished with. 
Uh, he always was a co-host on my television show, The Best Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, which you can see on our YouTube channel. And he uh, just helped bring ice fishing out of the dark ages, one of the true pioneers. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to switch things up, and we're going to talk dog training again right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 1600 ESPN. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by T-Mobile on 1600 ESPN. In fact, T-Mobile brings us our dog training segment uh, featuring Ben Garcia from Hideaway Kennels. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Terry. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Do you believe in this weather? It's it's great, but I think we need it to switch pretty soon. <laughs> so yeah, I'm nice, I'm but, talking ice know. fishing all day today and getting people worked up when it's going to be 70 tomorrow is tough. But there are ice fishing in the mountains. But even, you know, I know you're involved with the dog training, with Upland Game. Right. You know, usually Upland Game this time of the year, I'm looking for a little snow on the ground to cushion the crispiness, uh, gather the birds up. It's making it tough. It is. I mean, like it's, it's, it, you know, just that half inch of snow, that little bit of moisture helps the dogs even smell them better. It keeps their noses uh, wet, you know, but it's um, me and my wife were boxing up decoys this year and kind of making sure all our decoys are ready just in kind of hopeful that it starts snowing and we can go hunt some ducks. Cause it's uh it's definitely changed upland and waterfowl hunting and big game hunting this year. Oh, the weather has definitely played effect on fishing too. Oh, you know, it certainly yeah. has. In fact, in the next segment, we're going to talk some waterfall hunting with um, Brad Peterson. He guides for duck and goose hunting, and him and I have had some long right. talks. We're going to talk about it more. But while we're talking about the dogs, you know, we talked last week about the the fallacy or the pitfalls of getting a dog for Christmas because it's just the wrong time of the year with the weather coming, with the emotions right. evolved you may not do it for the right reasons but so what if i have a dog already i know one thing that you've harped at me over and over again is don't throw a tennis ball right right or any ball for that matter but especially tennis balls you know my my personal belief on it is um you know when when you talk dog training and you get to the subject matter predictable outcome right so the dog knows hey what are you asking it to do what does it do and it, it patterns on that behavior which ultimately goes back to Pavlov's theory. You know, you ring the bell, the dog salivates. And and what we get on our end, and we have some dogs in right now that are doing it, is their owners love balls, love chuckets. You know, they put the ball in the chucket and they throw it and they think, hey, I'm getting my dog's exercise. But what the dog ends up doing is, is dropping the ball and bouncing it at you, and then you pick it up and throw it again and reward them. So, you know, a puppy may start off like four inches away, and then the next week it's 10, and then it becomes three feet. But what you're doing is teaching that dog, hey, stop short, bounce the ball at me, and I'll throw it again. And then when we get to out bird hunting, you know, you're all of a sudden your dog's dropping the bird three feet away, and you can't figure it out. You know, and you've ultimately set up that pattern for that dog to do that behavior and kept rewarding it. And, and that's just my, my basic problem with, with tennis balls and balls and, and training with the dog. And I always tell people, you know, if you have time to throw a ball, you have time to do some training. If you have time to go for a walk, you have time to work some stay calm heels, you know. So it's just our laziness on the back end of it that we're doing it for a comfort of us instead of the outcome for the dog. And um, and I think that's our responsibility as dog owners is to really set that dog up for something we can reward them for that we want down the road. I, so, 
Isn't there something in the makeup of a tennis ball that isn't good for him, too? It's hard on him? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about a tennis ball, Terry, it's made to hit concrete and withstand a thousand bounces. You know, or if, if not, I mean, I don't play tennis, but I imagine, you know, 5,000 bounces. And and what they found is it starts wearing the enamel on their teeth. It just starts eating away at that enamel and causes some dental problems later in life. And um, and so I, you know, I just do not do balls at all. I, I think there's a lot of problems with them. Um, I know they're fun for everybody, but they're, um, they're definitely something that can come back to haunt you. One, either in your training and your hunting or the health of your dog, especially if they're in the backyard all day chewing on it with their canines on the outside, trying to think like it's like a bone and that fiberglass and that ball is just eating away that enamel and ultimately exposing the tooth to bacteria and disease. So I must have been an excellent dog trainer at one time because my last dog who's passed away, we haven't replaced him yet. um, If somebody threw a ball, he'd look at him and say like, are you going to get that? <laughs> smart dog, yeah. smart dog. But Terry, I hate to say it, but the dog may have been smarter than you. It just yeah. knew that hey, this is not a good thing. So yeah. just You're probably yeah. right. And he was getting. They, a little, are they all? They're, he, they're all smarter than us. Yeah, he yeah. was getting a little long in the tooth, and he wasn't hunting anymore. But he sure enjoyed playing. Um, you know, speaking yeah. of hunting, though, we talked about it with the weather. You know, it's a little tougher without the weather change. It's changing hunting. But people are still going out, and we have some birds out there. But what about this time of the year? You talked about the dog. Maybe his his, his smell, sense of smell isn't quite as good. Uh, what if you hit a bird, yeah. and then you can't find it? Right. So this is something I talked to one of my, with one of my clients about a couple weeks ago, and we really covered it. Is everybody wants to work dead bird. They think it's great their dog finds a dead bird. Um, you know, I was everybody, instead of working dead bird, go take a shooting lesson and learn to shoot better, <laughs> you know, or shoot the bird <laughs> twice before it goes down. And, um, and that's easier said than done. But just a tip for folks, like if you hit a bird and you have no idea where it's at, the, the tip of what I do, if I'm out on a hunt or I'm guiding a hunt, especially on upland, is I drop my hat right there. It's orange so I can see where it is, where I last saw the bird. And then I back out of there. I go 100, 200 yards back out. And I generally wait you know, a couple, a handful of 10 or 15 minutes. And one, what that does is allow either the birds to die or to settle down where it is and put some scent down. Because if you think about it, if, if you shoot that bird and right away start going interrupting in that process, the same, same distraction that got you into that bird to cause the flush is what's going to push that bird out. So what I do is I drop my hat, circle out of there completely, and then I quarter with my dog back in towards the hat. And that gives one, you know, we all talk about scent coming with a dog, and that's where they can smell the bird at a greater distance back compared to up close. So it gives the dog a chance to really work that scent cone, smell the bird. The bird's putting more scent down, and, and, and I guarantee you'll increase your chance of finding dead birds of making that move. And um, instead of just standing there on top of it, not moving. Or what I've seen a lot of people do is they'll get upwind of their dog and say, dead bird, dead bird in here, and they're ultimately blocking the scent of the bird with their own body scent and there's no way the dog can smell it at that point so you're better just to back out circle out come back into the wind get your dog in front of you so they can find the bird for you which is their job and what they they want the reward of doing for you now the one thing i want to ask so you can clarify if anybody could clarify for me if you back out like that how what does that do for the patience of the dog are they get a little antsy thinking you're not going after the bird how do they react or have you trained that out of them I, I think it's a great question, and I think it just resets them because they're still amped up looking for that bird of where it went, you know, and so it kind of clears them out because what happens, if you really watch it, like if you're hunting with two other hunters 
and you drop a bird, all of you circle in looking for that bird. You're just, that dog's looking at like, who do I handle? Who, what's going on compared to if you back out and you reset and go back into a quartering pattern with them, it generally calms them down and smooths them out and, and gives them more of an opportunity to find the bird than just standing around and everybody's yelling, find the bird over here, over here. Cause what happens and I've seen guys do it a hundred times or handlers do it a hundred times is, the dog's looking for the bird and they'll say dead bird. And the dog stops, looks up at the handler, loses the track, and then tries to go back to where they were tracking that bird. So really it kind of more or less resets the handler than it does the dog. Cause the dog's going to know its job once it smells the bird and you come back into that scent cone. Once again, the dog is smarter than us. <laughs> once, once again, seems, always. Yeah. yeah seems to be yeah, the theme so, today, right? <laughs> One last yeah. thing. I mean, you really look at it, Terry. I mean, like their nose receptor is, is so much higher than us and, and i watched this yesterday i was on a deer hunt yesterday or thanksgiving i was down on a deer hunt and um i watched the coyote sent me from at least a mile away you know i mean the wind was perfect as it was going down and that coyote alerted i could see it watch it couldn't see me because i was in camo on this whitetail hunt but it knew i was in the area looking straight at me and there's no way that coyote saw me so if you think that's a coyote you know that hasn't been bred for its nose to develop like these bird dogs their smell is so amazing, and, and we got to let them do their job and not interrupt it with our vocal commands overloading them. Last question real quick. We're going to steal a couple yeah. minutes from Brad, who's waiting, but I have time to make it up, so he'll have plenty of time on with us. I know you, this time of the year, you get a little concerned about people's confusion with GPS callers and just the e-caller. Right, right. And we've seen this a lot where these GPS callers, I mean, I use them. I have the, the Garmin Pro 550. I have the watch. I have the, the 200i that, you know, will track and send messages. I've got it all. And, and the, the GPSs are great, but that's a hunting collar. Compared to at your house, you want a training collar. And those are two different things that we can go into later at another time. But really in big picture is the, the training collars are made for when you're training a dog. So you're working here, you're working sit, whether you're using your vibration or your beep or you're using stimulation. Those are all the handheld smaller, your timing's faster, and the, the delivery to the dog's quicker. When you get into the hunting collars, which are the, the tracking collars, no, regardless of which brand you use, those technologies are used to give you a readout of where your dog is in the dog's position. So typically the correction time is slower. There's a lot of things that are different in that unit in the software that's, that's not made for having a dog around the house. So you really want to make sure when you get your new puppy, you're super excited about doing some collar work with it. You have the right tool for, for what you're trying to do, you know? And, um, and that's, that's the, the training collar. Those are those little ones. I, I use the Garmin Sport. I love it. It's a small one. It's got a cool feature on it that has a flashlight. So for all of us that go camping in the summer and have our dogs, we use it when we're camping. We just turn the flashlight on and we can see the dog out at night going to the bathroom. But that, that's a training collar for around the house. We're not putting our, our GPS ones around the house because there's, there's no need to know where they're at around the house. If you lived on property, I guess you could make that argument for it. But for around the house, start off on the inexpensive ones that are a couple hundred bucks, the Garmin's or whatever one you're going to use. But don't overload it for a brand-new puppy. Make sure you get something you can use that you can get, get your timing down and your hand movement and memorization on for that unit. All right, my friend, we are out of time. If people want to get a hold of yeah. you at Hideaway Kennels, how do they do that? Yeah, the best way is um, is they can reach us on the Internet through HideawayKennels.com or on Facebook at Hideaway Kennels. All right, so. we will talk to you again soon. Thanks, Terry. Enjoy this weather. You Hopefully bet. Hopefully it changes soon. Yep. So, all right, thanks, bud. Yep. Ben Bye. Garcia is brought to us by T-Mobile, bringing 5G 
to the outdoors. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come up, Brad Peterson is going to join us. When we come back, we're going to talk waterfall and fishing on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 1600 ESPN. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, brought to you in part by T-Mobile, bringing 5G to the outdoor community. Let's go to the phones. We're being joined by Brad Peterson of Brad Peterson Outdoors. He's not only uh, an accomplished year-round angler who gives us fishing information and updates, he's our resident waterfall expert. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Terry. So I got to ask you, now I... The weather's different every year, and it can change suddenly. And when we get into fishing, we'll talk about ice. I think it's going to come sooner than people think, but we'll talk about that. But this weather, I think duck season closes tomorrow in some areas. Goose season goes on. Duck season comes back. But how is this weather affecting the waterfall hunting? You know, there's kind of pros and cons to it. Uh, As far as the duck hunting goes, you know, it's made it a bit of a challenge If you've got a good early season spot, you know, those have kind of held on. But where people would normally expect to be finding ducks this time of year along the South Platte and, you know, those areas there, the birds really haven't made that transition real hard just because how warm it's been. So for ducks, it's it's been a bit of a challenge. Now on the good side of it, you know, all the ponds and reservoirs are open and stuff north of us is getting cold. So we're getting birds that are migrating down. And they're stopping here, and they're they're sticking around. And for the geese right now, you know, the goose hunting along the front range has just been a phenomenal start to the season. We've got more birds than normal. Uh, they've been decoying really well. One of the things that the goose hunters need to be aware of is the flight is real early in the morning. So whereas a lot of goose hunters think about trying to get set up by sunrise or a little bit after, and those birds will start flying eight, nine o'clock. I know a lot of guys who are already, you know, limited out by eight or eight 30 in the morning. So if you're looking to go out and chase geese during this Northeast region closure, which does start tomorrow on ducks and goes through uh, the 17th of December, it opens up again the 18th, but goose stays open. If you're going to get out there and chase geese during this little break of duck season, make sure to get out early and and be prepared and ready to go so that you're able to capitalize on those flights as soon as it starts. Now, with we'll talk about the geese. I want to come back to the ducks. Um, with the geese, now a lot of times this time of the year, a lot of the ponds are icing over, and you're fishing more river bottoms and things, but you're also fishing the fields a lot more for the geese. Are the geese out in the grain fields, or are they on the ponds, or is it a combination? It's a combination of both, but most of the people I know that are having good success are focusing on the fields, and it really depends on the day. You know, corn is always a solid, you know, good producer for geese working that, but I'm seeing a lot of birds out on grass and alfalfa fields right now. When it's warmer, geese really kind of like to to just graze a little bit, so pretty much you know, all the fields are producing right now. So no matter what type of field you've got access to, and if you don't have access, you know, there's there's various clubs or guide services that can get you out there. But pretty much all of them are giving you a good opportunity to get on some real quality goose hunting. And I would say from now till about the, 
on the 15th of December, we're probably going to have some of our best goose hunting of the year just based on what the weather is, you know, the fields out there, and we're getting past that full moon that we had just about a week ago. So the birds are not going to be flying as much at night. I think we're going to have some real phenomenal goose hunting going on. Now, are you setting out some pretty good decoy sets for these geese, and are you doing a lot of calling? Right now, there's a lot of lesser birds. So I would say this is the time of year to put out all the decoys you've got, and you know, it may be time to buddy up with people. And then as far as it comes to calling, lessers are very much a talkative subspecies of the Canada goose. So make a lot of noise. If you've got a call that's a little bit more on the higher pitch range, that's kind of the vocal range of the, the lesser goose. So use those, a lot of noise, and use a large group of decoys. But whatever you've got, the lessers like to sit real tight together. So even if you don't have a whole lot of decoys, this is the time of year to kind of pack them in and create as big of a black hole looking area as you can. That's going to draw the attention of those lessers. Now, as we approach, you said, now duck season closes tomorrow and most, most of the flyways here, and then it'll open again the 18th. Now that a lot of those ducks on the 18th, people will hunt with guides. They'll have private land they can get to, but a lot of the duck hunters use the blinds that are available through the reservation system on Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And when you use that system, you can only book, I think, two weeks in advance. So if you were looking out, you know, in about a week, you're going to have to start making your reservations. What kind of areas do you think? Do you just have to watch the weather and hope, or what are you going to try to reserve? I'm going to, I'm going to play the odds. And the odds are between now and the 18th, we're going to have some cold snaps that are going to freeze these ponds up. So my first choice, if I'm going to look at doing a reservation, is either going to be a warm water slough or the river bottom. If, you know, we start getting closer and you start noticing that, man, it it doesn't look like we're going to get colder, um, then, you know, maybe I would look at just getting one of those pond reservations if you can't get a river spot. And, you know, if it ends up freezing, you can cancel the reservation and then just go to one of the the areas that have just kind of open access along the river. So if you can't get a river reservation, don't be afraid to get some of those ponds. The big thing I'd look at is kind of get the larger ponds, and especially ones that are have more of a north-south alignment to them. This time of year, our predominant winds are north and south, and so that's going to keep those ponds open a little bit longer then your east-west ones, they aren't going to get the wind and the wave action, so they could freeze up easier. So if you find one that's north-south, a little bigger, you know, and you can't get a, a river bottom reservation, go get that reservation for that other pond and watch the weather. And if it looks like it's going to get frozen, then just cancel that reservation and go to one of the – I mean, the state has pro- well over, I think, 30 miles of access and and it could even be 40-plus miles of access of public ground on the river between basically brush and the Nebraska line. So there's a lot of opportunities just for those um, 
walk-in access, you know, day of type places. All right. We've only got about three, four minutes left. I do want to talk, you know, a lot of the boat ramps are closing on the 1st. We've got some open water. We should see some ice. What are you anticipating? What are you going to be fishing the next few days? And then when do you look? Usually by now, you and I are on the ice together. Yeah, we, we definitely are usually on on the ice by now. Um, I'm going to hit the open water the last few days here at Boyd. Um, I, there's still a real good white bass bite going. I'm starting to pick up some smallmouth out deeper and, and walleyes, um, you know, kind of doing that whole jig and wrap thing. They have stocked it with trout, so you have the act you know, the opportunity to catch some trout from shore or trolling. And as far as ISIS can, you know, we're, we're looking here locally. What we've got is our lakes along the front range are a lot warmer than normal, but I'm starting to hear a pockets in the mountains. You know, someone was up at chambers and said that they were seeing about three inches of ice. I talked to some people up in the Dillon area and Dillon isn't frozen but some of those other smaller ponds and lakes up in that area are starting to get enough ice to fish. So if you really have that bug going on, I think the opportunity to get up in the hills in the next week, you're going to start seeing some of those places freeze up. And usually if chambers and those have frozen up, red feather is about a week behind. And so, you know, maybe in the next 10 days or so, red feathers should be getting some fishable ice on it. But the front range, our forecast, I'm really thinking we're probably looking towards the first of the year. But if you're thinking about ice fishing, I know you've been talking about it and a lot of other people have, you know, the supply issues and all of that. So you need to get out and get your ice fishing gear and supplies that you want to have. And there's a lot of the different retailers along the front range that are doing uh, ice fishing specials or seminars right now. So if you kind of got the urge, but you can't get up to the mountains, it may be a good time to hit some of those retail locations, stop by a seminar, and uh, pick up some of that product you still need. Well, I think you're absolutely right. We're going to see that the product that is in hasn't taken off the shelves too much yet because of the weather, but it will. And it's looking like it's going to take a while to replenish it. Also, uh, Brad, I would think that most of the retailers up and down the front range, uh, if you're looking to buy outdoor gear for Christmas gifts, I would get in early, wouldn't you? I definitely would. And, um, you know, if if you have some stuff that you're really looking for, start shopping for it now. And these retailers are getting shipments in, you know, every few days. And so either talk to some of the people and maybe they're they're willing to call you and let you know if it comes in. If not, you may need to stop in, you know, every four or five days just to see uh, if that product has come in because a lot of the stuff, is going off the shelves as fast as it comes in, like, you know, steel shot for waterfowl hunting, pheasant loads, you know, a lot of that stuff, as soon as it comes in, it's gone in a day or two. So you need to kind of keep stopping by those places periodically to find what you need. All right. And if people want to book a waterfall trip or a fishing trip with you or just talk to you about more information, how do they get a hold of you? You can find me on Facebook at Brad Peterson Outdoors or give me a call at 303-829-3998. All right, my friend, you and I will get on the ice very soon. I'm looking forward to it, Terry. All right, Brad Peterson, Brad Peterson Outdoors. We'll take a quick timeout, and we come back. We'll wrap up this edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 1600 ESPN. 
You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1600 ESPN. We're going to wrap things up, but before I do, if this is the first time you've heard us, we've been on ESPN a lot the last couple months. Now, normally we broadcast 9 to 11 on 104.3 The Fan. My understanding is the next two, three weeks we will be back on The Fan from 9 to 11. But if you don't find us there, chances are if you switch over to 1600 at 10 o'clock, you'll find the show. But we podcast everything, both on my Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. You can get links to the podcast. And on 1043thefan.com, go to my um, my page. And if you're in an area where you don't receive one of the channels, you can always listen to us online live, too. Speaking of live broadcasts, on the 30th of November, I am going to join Brian Bro Brosdahl, legendary angler, uh, on Tuesday night for a live broadcast online, and we're going to talk ice fishing. I don't have all the particulars yet, but if you go to Brian Brosdahl or Bro Brosdahl's page, I'm sure you'll find the information there. Uh, we're going to get some ice starting. Be extremely safe. I am going to post on our our Facebook page some ice safety guidelines. Uh, we'll get up-to-date reports on where we're seeing ice. Follow us there. Go to our YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. There's a lot of ice fishing there. In fact, Karen just put a link to one of those on our Facebook page. I want to thank Michael for keeping things running. And, Michael, we must have done okay because I didn't get one message from Karen today. So if, if one of us would have screwed up, she would have let me know exactly what I did wrong. And if it's a minor one, she might be waiting till I get home. But you're in the clear. Good job today. And, of course, always thanks to my wife and producer, Karen, who puts spends the week putting this show together. And I just show up and pretend I know something. But we appreciate all of you. Hope you enjoy the rest of your Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, join us next week on 104.3 The Fan. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour and ESPN Sports.